0: Good to be together today. I'm Zach, one of the pastors. If you're new here, uh, we want to say welcome. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to have you get to know those around you. Uh, We want to be known as a church that's hospitable and welcoming. And so um, if you don't know someone, talk to them. And uh, you don't have to be overbearing, but you can be uh, welcoming. And that's a really good thing. And um, we don't want to be underbearing either. And honestly, um, the kind of family that God calls us to be is one who's forsaking Uh, just like all about me and actually pursuing being all about others because that's how God has treated us in the gospel. And so that's why we do this greeting on a Sunday morning is to try to live out that identity. So like I said, I'm Zach, one of the pastors here, and um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 45 today. And we're going to seek to understand the whole of the chapter. So if you have a Bible, digital on your phone or on— paper. Why don't we fire that up here? Uh, Genesis 45. I want to see that this is coming straight out of God's Word, the Bible. So let me ask you this. Can you relate to this question in your life? God, you brought me here. Will you provide? God, you brought me here, right here where I'm at right now, And and I'm asking, God, are you going to provide for me? God, you brought me here. Will you provide? How many stories could I tell about this in in my own life? Almost 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I got engaged, and she was in medical school. And after a, a solid semester, she did fine. She just had this kind of overwhelming sense that she needed to not be in medical school anymore. And that was a big deal. And so we labored over that decision, and it was full of many conversations, many tears, and we felt like God was leading us to not have her be in medical school anymore. She initiated that, and I was supportive of that. And we told her parents, parents not happy about that, you know? You dream of your girl growing up to be a successful doctor, and now she's probably just going to go Whatever, you know, and um, they didn't know what, and that made them nervous, right? And I was supportive, but at the same time, I was like having dreams of that sweet truck I wanted to buy after she finished medical school and we had all this money. And I had to say goodbye to that dream quickly. But we stepped out in faith. And, and God, we don't know where you're leading, but we know this is where you're guiding us. And we don't know what's going to happen in the provision God, you brought us to this place. Will you provide? And where God guides, God provides. Amen. A few years later, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, so that I could pursue a career in the music industry. And we moved down there, 50000 in debt from school loans and a car loan. And we had two small kids at the time. Taylor was two. Autumn was a little baby. And no guarantees of anything and there were some really dark days there, wondering about God's provision. Like God, we we feel like you brought us here. This is clear. We were supposed to move down here. Are you going to provide? And there were some really tough days in there in our marriage. We were tested probably the most we've ever been tested after about seven years. We had some real struggles to work through in our marriage, and that wasn't comfortable. That wasn't easy. Uh, we were financially kind of a mess. That wasn't comfortable. That wasn't easy. But as we look back at that time, almost 12 years ago now, we see that around every corner, God's provision was there. God's provision was there. Where God guides, God provides. A few years later, we were planning to adopt a baby from Eastern Europe. And we've gone through the whole administrative process of all the paperwork, all the training, all the e-learning stuff you have to do online, and all the documentation. It's just this massive stack of stuff you got to do. And it was all done. And we paid a significant amount of money to get to that point. And now we're just waiting for what's called a referral. Basically, that you get a call, and they're like, we got your baby. Get over here as soon as possible. We were at that stage waiting to fly to Eastern Europe. But instead we got a call from a friend of ours at the church where we were serving at the time in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she was an adoption coordinator. And she said to us, "Are you guys willing to change gears? Cuz there's a little African American girl, 6 weeks old, 6 weeks old in Alabama, and she needs a home. Are you guys interested?" And so we felt like, after much discussion and prayer and seeking wise counsel, we felt like, yes, God is guiding us here. We're switching gears. We're going to Alabama. We're going to have Maya. There's a problem, though. The adoption agency needed about $13,000, and they needed it in 48 hours. They needed us to commit to it, and we didn't have it. We stepped out of faith, and we have our fourth child, Maya. And where God guides, God provides. 48 hours later, the money came in. And that's just the story of where you sit this morning. That's the story of this church. About 70 years ago, three families started talking, what if we planted a church in the Midwest? Well, where are we going to go? Let's, let's go to Madison. Let's, let's plant a church in Madison. We want to see a new community of faith established, a new gospel work in this city, uh, to be a city on a hill amidst the city of Madison. A place where where a family can gather, a spiritual family can gather to be a spirit-filled family that seeks to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through what we say and how we live, through declaration and demonstration. And we believe that God was calling us to this. So we stepped out in faith, quit our jobs, said no to the sweet insurance that we had. Yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, And we had to raise a ton of money. Basically, so the church wouldn't be hindered in the short term because we didn't have anybody, right? So we raised a ton of money about s- between three families, $600,000 that would cover us, cover three families over the course of what was supposed to be about five years. That was a big deal. God, we feel like you've called us to Madison. Are you going to provide? And here we sit. Where God guides, God provides. So this is the one thing I want you guys remembering as we walk out of here today. I want you to be encouraged and challenged by this. Where God guides, God provides. And that's a nice little slick preacher cliche. It rhymes, right? And I, this, isn't, this, is, this is from someone else. I didn't make this up, right? I'm borrowing this from somebody else. But here's the point. It's so true, and it's so good to remember because we're going to see it jump off the pages of Joseph's life in chapter 45, where God guides, God provides. So let's open there in our Bibles, and let's take a look. Genesis 45, starting in verse 1. Then It'll be on the screen, too, if you need it. Then then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, he cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. All right, so what's going on here? Some of you maybe have been gone. You're not up to speed on the whole narrative of Joseph. It covers a lot of chapters at the end of Genesis. So here's the deal. Here's what's going on. Here's what brings us to verse 1. You can leave it up there, Chris, if you want. So many years, about 20 years before this, Joseph is a young man. He's a little arrogant. He's a little unwise. He's a son of favoritism. His dad loves him the most out of everybody else. He's got a sweet technicolor dream coat, right? He's favored, and his brothers hate that. And he's got some dreams that are prophesied from God that he's going to be the man someday, and he tells that to his brothers. His brothers do not like that whatsoever because he's younger, and that's not how that works in that culture. And so his brothers are violent. His brothers are impulsive. And what they decide to do is they want to kill him. But instead of killing him, they kind of dial it back just a hair. And instead of killing him, they decide to sell him into slavery. Because if they kill him, they don't get any money. So let's at least make some money off this. Right? That's what they do. So they take him and they sell him to slave traders that are heading down to Egypt. Okay? A long ways away. And Joseph is taken there, okay? Put yourself in those shoes. He's taken there, and for 13 years, this is what we've learned, but I'm just summarizing, he was either a servant slave or he's in prison. For 13 years. He wasn't in prison because he did anything wrong. He's framed, and he bore the injustice, okay? And that's a large portion of his adult life, a slave or in prison, and then one day, because God was with him, and we, we heard that over and over again in those chapters that we saw a few weeks ago, God was with him, God was with him. No matter what he did, God blessed it. Even in the lowest of lows, even in the lowest of lows in prison, in Egyptian prison, God was with him. And then one day, it all changes. And this massive, radical, rags-to-rich Rich's story happens, and he goes from the dungeon to the pinnacle of authority in Egypt. And he's called to come to Pharaoh and interpret some of Pharaoh's dreams. And and Pharaoh senses that God's power is all over Joseph. And so he says to Joseph, Joseph, guess what? I'm going to take you out of that dungeon. I'm going to take you out of that prison, and I want you to be the man in Egypt. I'm going to endow you with all of my authority from here on out. And that's what happens crazy, snap of fingers, rags to riches story in Joseph's life. Well, then what happens? Well, then there's a famine in the land. And these people are uh, agricultural people. It's a culture of agriculture. And so if there's a famine, if there's no good farming, people suffer, and that's what happened. People are dying and starving to death because they can't eat. And so what happens is Joseph's brother's are forced to go from where they were down to Egypt to get food. They're forced to come to Joseph to buy food because Joseph is in charge of everything. And because of his wise planning, there was food in Egypt. So they come down to Egypt to buy food. And for three chapters of the Bible, like we saw last week in Scott's message he preached so well, Joseph tests his brothers. Because remember, the last thing he he heard from them, the last thing he saw of them was murderous actions, selfish actions, things that brothers should never do to brothers. They sold them into slavery. That's the last memory he has of being face-to-face with them. So he tests their hearts. Are these guys changed? Are they pure of heart? And he pretends to not know who they are but he does, but they have no idea who he is. And so he's been in relationship with them for a few days or weeks or so, and they don't know it's him, but he knows it's them. And so that leads us, all of that leads us to chapter 45. And this verse right here, verse one. Now think of it. Place yourself into the world of the text. You can imagine this, okay? You haven't seen your brothers for two decades For some of you in the room, that's a majority of your life. You haven't seen your family. You don't know anything about them. You don't send emails back then. You don't like stalk people on Facebook back then. You don't know anything. They could be dead, whatever. The last memory you have of them is them throwing you in some pit and then selling you into slavery. And you're ripped away from your family, never to see them again. And here they are facing starvation and, and you haven't seen your dad in 20 years, and you love him, and you miss him, and you're wondering if he's still alive. And they tell you he's still alive. So can you imagine just this collision of emotions? Right, you you were brutalized by them, but you still love them. You're, they're your brothers, your father. You haven't seen him, you love him, you miss him. He's still alive and they're suffering, and they could starve to death, and they're pleading for your mercy, and part of you wants to show them judgment, part of you loves them. I mean, it's just a massive collision of emotions, right? Wouldn't that be normal human response? And you can see all this emotional pressure. The cork just comes off the bottle for Joseph right here. Verse one. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the whole house—so he has a meltdown here, right? And the whole household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph has this, this, this meltdown in front of his brothers, so much so that everybody outside can hear him wailing. And he's just like, it's me. You're, you're looking at your brother who you betrayed all those years ago, and I, and I miss my dad like crazy. I think of him every day. Is he still alive? And, and they go into like this, this statue-like shock, right? You can imagine that too. Like, what, what is going on here? So verse four, Let's check it out. So Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, isn't this fascinating? Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Some intense verses here. So what's the point? Let your eyes look over the text. What's the repeated theme? Four, five, six, seven, eight. Is, it, is, there, is, is the emphasis from Joseph's explanation here, the horrible acts that his brothers committed, he mentions it. Is that the emphasis? Is the emphasis some massive grudge that he's been holding all those years? Is that what he says? I think the emphasis here is God guided Joseph here. God guided all of it. God led all of it. God steered all of it. God ordained all of it. God orchestrated all of it. What does he say? What's the word? God sent. You see that there? He doesn't say Man, you guys, you were unbelievably wicked towards me, and God was powerless to do anything about it. But guess what? He can, he can take lemons and make lemonade. You know, this is the, the hand that you dealt him, and so God can make anything out of that. That's not what it says, does it? It says, God sent me here. You thought it was all about you, and according to you and what you did, That's how this works, but that's not really what's going on here. God is what's going on here. God sent me here. Verse 5, see it? God sent. Verse 7, God sent. Verse 8, it was not you. Isn't that funny that he says that? Because that's exactly what we read. The reason why he showed up is because they sold him into slavery. And he says right to their face, it wasn't you. Like, what? No, it was the Lord. God was behind the scenes in all of this. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. I know some of you are thinking, 13 years as a slave or in prison, God did that? Being framed for rape by Potiphar's wife, going to prison, God did that? God steered that? God, Joseph, are you saying God led you to that? Doesn't that mean that God ordained the suffering of Joseph? Doesn't that mean that God guided Joseph into all that suffering that he endured? What does the text say? Friends, listen to me. Just because a mentor of mine said this to me, and I'll never forget just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not biblical. Just because it doesn't fit into our human philosophical categories doesn't mean it's not biblical. Now, there's mystery here. We're swimming in the deep end of the theological pool here, and we're not going to plunge the depths this morning, but I just want you to see it in the text. There's mystery here, and we're going we're gonna to talk about what the Bible teaches in reference to these things as we do life together with the Bibles open into the future. We're not going to plumb the depths this morning, but I want you to see this. God doesn't explain all the details to his people of how this all works in the courts of heaven. But make no mistake, the Bible doesn't blush and Joseph doesn't blush. God sent me here. God guided me here. God is not evil, but he can use the wicked actions of others to see his plan come about. Where God guides, God provides. Where God guides, God provides. So why did God do this? Why did God do this? Why did God guide him here? Look at verse 7 again. Let's break this down. Joseph tells us, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, what's going on here? What does this mean? Okay, we gotta remember who he's talking to. Who is Joseph talking to here? Who's the you in verse 7? Well, he's talking to his brothers, right? The U is a plural U. It's these eleven other or ten other guys. So who are his brothers? Well, his brothers are the twelve sons of Jacob. And who's Jacob? Track with me now. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. With me? You got the family tree in your head? So who's Abraham? Why does that matter? Well, here's the deal. As as you remember our teaching in the book of Genesis, or maybe you don't, let me remind you. The one that God came to many years before this and made all these cosmic promises about saving the world through him was Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to use you and all the kids that come from your family line to save the world, to be a blessing to the world, to have good news preached to them about salvation. And you're going to be my people in my place with my presence on my proactive mission. And ultimately, through your line, Abraham is going to come the Savior. And his name is Jesus. Now, we know that. Abraham didn't know that at the time. But he made these massive promises that through you, the whole world's going to be blessed. So that's the promise. And if Abraham doesn't have any kids, that promise is not fulfilled, right? So consider the context. What's going on in the context of this whole story? Why are those brothers standing in front of Joseph in the first place? It's because of this famine, right? And why is famine a threat? Well, a famine is a threat because you starve to death. And if God's people starve to death, what happens? What does that say about God? It says that God can't keep his promises. These people that were promised to multiply and multiply and multiply and be a people of God's own possession, if they go away, God's word is null and void. But God always keeps his promises, and Joseph knows that, and that's what verse 7 is all about. And God sent me before you, brothers, to preserve for you, brothers, a remnant on the earth to keep the family line going. To keep God's promise going. To keep that family line going, which is ultimately going to give birth to the Messiah, King Jesus. To keep alive for you many survivors. So all he's saying is all of this happens to fit into the plan of God. The whole plan of the book of Genesis, the whole plan from Genesis to Revelation, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, all of that hinges on his brothers not starving to death in the famine. You with me? Where God has guided Joseph, God has provided. That's what he says. To preserve, to provide, verse 7. And that's what the whole rest of the chapter demonstrates. It's the whole rest of the chapter is just one big summary of, of provision. That God guided Joseph, and he provided for Joseph, ultimately, eventually, and that provision provided for everybody else. Look at it here. If you just glance down at verse 11, see what happens here is— uh, Joseph asked to have his whole family come down to Egypt. And that's what happens, to provide for them. Verse 11, Come down and I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine. So I'm going to provide. Verse 11. Verse 17, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your, your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land. Provide. Verse 21, and the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions, Provisions, provide, right? His whole family was provided for down in the land of Egypt. And the same thing we see in verse 23. So that's the whole summary of the rest of the chapter. Joseph was guided here so that God could provide. God guides and God provides. The line of Abraham will never be snuffed out. And from that line will come the ultimate Joseph. His name is Jesus, and he will be guided by the Father so that he could be the ultimate provision of God. Where God guides, God provides. Do you see that jump off the page of this text? Where God guides, God provides. Now that sounds good. It's catchy. It's comforting. You know where you sit right there to hear that, to be reminded of that. But like we've seen in the life of Joseph, the... The process of God guiding is not always comfortable. The process of God guiding is not always comfortable. So before we see the provision of God, sometimes the process of his sovereign, loving guidance can be painful, right? When you're in the midst of the guidance, it often doesn't feel loving. Dare I say it maybe often feels oppressive. And you're wondering, is my God really a good father? Because what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing right now is not comfortable. I mean, Joseph, 13 years slave or in prison, like that's not comfortable. But that was part of the guidance of Joseph. That was part of the guidance of Joseph. That's not comfortable or easy or emotionally simple to bear. all of us in this room in one sense or another are in the the process of the guiding. In the midst of the the guiding process. And for some of us, it's not easy or comfortable. I mean, I, I just look around the room. I know your stories. I look at the McCarthy's back here. James, for six years, has been working like crazy so he can become a pediatric plastic surgeon. And Katie, his wife, has, has had hour after hour of, in some sense, being a single mom because James, he's working 80 hours a week. And they've got this dream of what they want to see happen in their life. And, and they believe that God has guided them here for such a time as this. But that, that, that guiding hasn't been comfortable. But they believe that he did it for a purpose and he has, he has provided. Amen. And he is providing. And they're heading out to a new place. And he's provided a job for them to be a blessing. I know other stories in this room, right? But when you're in the midst of that guiding process, I know I can get amen from Katie and James, and you don't see what that's going to look like. We don't have a job yet. That's really uncomfortable. When you're sitting in that Egyptian prison cell, and you don't know what, what's at the, where the light at the end of the tunnel is, It's uncomfortable. We wait for the provision so often. And and like you've heard me say before, the waiting room is the worst. The waiting room is the worst. It's tension. It's impatience. It's anxiety. It's lack of clarity, lack of certainty. And Joseph knew this full well, yet he said, God guided me into this waiting room. God guided me into this waiting room. For 13 years, he knew that full well. Some of you in this room have been in the waiting room for three days. Some of you have been in the waiting room for a few weeks. Some of you a few months. Maybe some of you have been in there for 13 years or more. All of us in some sense are in it, have been in it. And that's the Christian life in general. We wait, Paul says, for the redemption of our bodies, for the great final end of all history where we have resurrected bodies and Jesus returns and makes all things right. So, in some sense, Joseph's story is all of our stories. In the in the in the meta sense, but in the in the macro sense, but in the micro, a lot of us, it's up in our face right now, right today. God, are you gonna provide? I don't have a job. God, are you gonna provide? I'm waiting on you, Lord. God, my my, my finances are a mess, Lord. I'm waiting. Lord, my marriage is a mess. I I, want to be faithful. I I don't know how to make sense of this, and I don't know how to do this on my own. My my children are, are wayward, Lord. We're praying and we're waiting. We're waiting for you, God. God, we're waiting for you. We believe that you've guided us to step out in faith, and right now it's not comfortable. Lord, will you provide? I mean, whatever it is. Wherever God has guided you, do you know that he's brought you there? And let me ask a more honest question. Does that, does that scare you? That God guides? That God is over all? That he's completely sovereign? That's what Joseph is telling us. God is guiding. He is sovereign. Let me give you this quote. I think this is really helpful from Paul Tripp. Do you ever struggle with God's sovereignty, he writes? Do you wonder why he has ordained for you to face the things you face? Are you ever tempted to doubt his goodness or question his love? Or do you experience rest of heart, even when your relationships are messy and your circumstances are difficult? The following words are about where the rest is can be found. I did it again and again when our children resisted our instruction and correction. I did it again and again when they debated a command or questioned our plans. I did it again and again when they opposed our authority and quested for self-rule. I did it again and again for two good reasons. To begin with, my wife and I had brought children into this world who thought they didn't need us. Like us, each each of them at some point fell into believing that they were far more knowledgeable and capable than they really were. Like us, they often assumed that their intentions were noble and their plans were sound. Like us, they tended to think they were capable of determining what was best, even when they lacked important information and experience. Like we often do, they simply felt they were in possession of a better way. But there was a second reason I did it again and again. Our children were too young to grasp the abstract, strategic, and often theological purposes underlying my instruction. Even if I explained everything in, an, in as age-appropriate a way as I could, they would still have no actual understanding. They just did not yet have the categories or the capacity to grasp the parental logic behind the plan or command. So I did the same thing again and again. I would kneel down in front of them at eye level and say, please look at daddy's face. Do you know how much I love you? Do you know that your daddy is not a mean, bad man? Do you know that I would never ask you to do anything that would hurt you or make you sick? I'm sorry that you can't understand why daddy is asking you to do this. I wish I could explain it to you, but you're too young to understand. So I'm going to ask you to do something. Trust Daddy. When you walk down the hallway to do what Daddy has asked you to do, say to yourself, my Daddy loves me. My Daddy would never ask me to do something bad. I'm going to trust my Daddy and stop trying to be the Daddy of my Daddy. God does the same thing with you over and over again. Where God sovereignly and lovingly guides He will provide. But see, the essence of this in the Christian life is not— see, we all want to call God to account and say, God, I want you to tell me right now, and I want to be on this timetable, and I want it to look like this. And God doesn't work that way as much as we want him to. The essence in the Christian life is not explanations from God, but trusting in God during the process of his guiding during the process of him sovereignly guiding. God is there. He's in control. That's what Joseph's saying. He sent. He did it. God did all of this. He did it for a purpose. And and God can't explain it all to us, but he's promised his presence to be with us. What do we see in the life of Joseph? God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. Guiding as we wait for the providing. Listen to these words from Von Roberts. It's a little shorter quote. So helpful. Imagine you're walking on the coast looking out to sea. You notice a girl swimming not far from the shore, and then, to your horror, you see a shark approaching her. You shout for help, but no one listens. The others around you all see what is happening, but seem completely unconcerned. You run around the corner to try to get some help, and there you see a big black chair with one word written on the back of it in capitals. Director. A man sits on it with a big cigar and a loud voice shouting instructions through a megaphone. You heave a sigh of relief. You've stumbled on a film set. The director has everything under control. This is the effect of the vision in Revelation chapter 4. Whatever the appearances, God is in control. He's the great director of the universe, sitting on a throne, and we soon discover that the Lord Jesus is there as well. John writes, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Jesus is that divine king of the universe. He has suffered and has triumphed, and his death guarantees that all those who suffer for him on earth will also triumph. We may not understand what he's doing in the world, but we can be absolutely sure that he is in charge. God is king. Where God guides, God provides. Let me close with this. Tim Keller says that there's two ways to read the Bible, and I in general, agree with him. I've seen this to be true. There's two ways to read the Bible. One way is to have us, have your frame of mind, to put yourself as the centerpiece of the Bible. And the other is to see Jesus as the center of the Bible. Now, our default setting is always to place ourselves at the center of the Bible, meaning the story of Joseph ultimately is all about me. And so I got to figure out how to be like Joseph, Right? But Jesus has a better message, a different message. Jesus says, no, you're not the center of the Bible. I'm the center of the Bible. And he said that to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures to find God. Little do you know, all of these scriptures are about me. John 5, 39. So this story is not written so that we can be like Joseph. The story, the story was written in history. This historically took place and written down for us in the Bible so that we'd have deep trust and treasuring in Jesus. And here's what I mean. Jesus is the fulfillment of Joseph. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of Joseph. Jesus is the true and ultimate picture of where God guides, God provides. So don't try and trust in your performance to be like Joseph. Joseph. That's reading yourself as the center of the Bible. Don't try to trust your performance to be like Joseph because you can't do that anyway. Trust in this good news. God guided Jesus to this planet to seek and save those who were lost and knew they needed a Savior from their sins, who knew they didn't have the power to be like Joseph because they were completely at a loss to manage their own salvation. If you feel that way, this good news Christianity is for you. You can't conjure up salvation on your own. You can't climb the ladder of good deeds on your own and say, God, now you owe me salvation because look how great I am. No, no, no. That's every other religion in the world. Christianity is so much different. It's recognizing that I can't do what Joseph did perfectly, but Jesus did. Jesus is the true and full embodiment of believing that where God guides, God provides. Jesus was guided, sent, ordained, just like Joseph, to come to us. And what what happened with Jesus? He endured massive darkness, just like Joseph, along the way. It doesn't get any darker than a Roman, bloody, torturous cross, where he substitutes himself to bear the wrath, the just wrath of God that's poured out on sin. And it should have been us bearing our own wrath, but it was him instead. That was God's guiding. Now, were there evil men like Joseph's brothers in the process? Yeah, there was Caiaphas, there was Judas, there was Pontius Pilate, there was murderous crowds. But at the end of the day, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God guided this whole thing. The Bible says that God set Jesus forth as a propitiation. Isaiah 53 says that it was the will of the Lord to bruise him so that he could achieve our salvation. So Jesus endures massive darkness, just like Joseph, but did not God provide? Even though God guided Jesus into darkness, did he not provide? And that's what the empty tomb is all about. That's the message of the empty tomb. It's the ultimate evidence that God provides. Where he guides, he will provide. The empty tomb is the vision of provision. The empty tomb is the ultimate Christian vision of provision. Because that's a vision of victory over that which is ultimately all of our threat. What, What threatens all of us in common the most? Death. And, and God comes in Jesus and says, I've provided in the midst of that. See this empty tomb 2,000 years ago, space, time, and history. And because that's true, all of these things that we see in the life of Joseph can be ours. Because of Jesus and us being united to him by faith and all of the perfection of Jesus that is accredited to our account by faith as a gift, not according to works. Not because we work so hard and we we pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and God looked down and said, wow, you guys are pretty amazing. Okay, I guess I'll save you. No, no, no. That's not how it works. That's not Christianity. But that's our default setting. That's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus was the only perfect one. And if I trust him and treasure him, I can be united to him and all of his perfection is then credited to me simply as a gift. And you don't have the power to be like Joseph. You don't want to be like Joseph either. I mean, he was kind of arrogant as a a young guy. He wasn't perfect. He was a sinner just like us. But Jesus had the power to be the ultimate Joseph, the one who perfectly believed in God's provision, who perfectly trusted where the Father was guiding him. He trusted in the provision of God because Jesus was the provision of God. Feel that? He perfectly believed that where the Father had guided him, he would provide for him. And thus, because that's true, he says, to all who are willing to come, come to me. Forsake your self-management, your, your projects of self-salvation. Leave all that behind and just come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. You're so thirsty and tired from trying to earn your own salvation. You're so thirsty and tired from drinking out of the sewer that, that, that is sin. Come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. I'm what you need. I was guided here for you. I am your provision. I'm the ultimate picture of where God guides, God provides. So that's 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 Christianity right there. That's Christianity. That's the meta view of where God guides, God provides. But even in the micro, because the macro is true, the micro of your day-to-day life, you can have hope. You can have courage. You can have perseverance. All this is such good news for us today. You know why? Is it not clear, Vine family, is it not clear? In light of all this, you don't have to fear stepping out in faith. And that's the essence of the Christian life. I had to step out in faith to hear this message about salvation that came through this guy, Jesus. And God orchestrated this whole deal. And it started with Abraham and it fulfilled in Jesus. And it's moving on to the church. And here we are in Madison 2,000 years later. That whole deal, I had to go to God and say, Man, I trust you by faith that it's true. And I'm going to step out in faith and believe it. And that same mechanism of faith happens every day as you wait for the provision of God in the midst of whatever He's guiding you to. So, whether it's a new job, God, are you going to provide? Whether it's, I got to raise money to to start this new ministry initiative, God, are you going to provide? Whether Whatever it is, God, I feel like I, I just want to share my faith w- with my neighbors. Will you provide, Lord? Because I'm scared. And they, they might make fun of me, and I might be ostracized. However God is calling you to step out in faith, you don't have to fear. You feel that? Because where God guides, God provides. So step out, of Vine family, step out in faith. Maybe it's to the nations. Maybe God has given you a heart for unreached people groups. And that's, that's not gonna be comfortable, but step out of faith. God will provide. Maybe he's just called you to share your, your faith with your neighbor. Maybe he's called you to give sacrificially to something, and that feels scary, but you want to. He's gonna provide? Whatever it is, step out of faith without fear. Number one command in the Bible, don't fear. Don't fear. Trust me. or God guides, God Provides. Where he is guiding, he will be providing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this truth that comes from your word and that flows from the evidence that, 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 that you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. That while we were yet sinners, you provided for us. And so may we come to you by faith and see your provision credit to us as a gift. And may that change our lives, fill us with your spirit as we know and understand that that's how we become your children and know that our sins are forgiven and know that we have eternal life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Was it-